Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. I'm joined today by Lee Cardhouse, the Chief Investment Officer of Hargreaves Lansdowne, the UK's largest stock and fund-broking firm, which boasts more than 950,000 active clients and administers or manages some £79 billion of client money on its platform. Lee's responsibilities at the firm include both overseeing the research that produces its influential Wealth 150 list of favourite funds and managing its own range of in-house multi-manager funds. With the industry regulator, the FCA, having recently announced its intention to do a more detailed review of how investment platforms research, rate and charge for the funds they put on their best buy lists, HL has recently published its own assessment of how well its Wealth 150 selections have performed. And that is the starting point for our conversation today. So can we start, Lee, by asking you why you've chosen this moment uh, at Hargreaves Lansdowne to publish some research into the way that the funds on your Wealth 150 list have performed? Okay, uh, I guess it comes down to a number of sort of factors, both pushing and pulling. I think our clients have, um, for some time, or a certain number of clients have sometimes said, well, why should we listen to Hargreaves Lansdowne? Yeah, what proof have you got that your selections are actually any good? So there's definitely been a, a pull from um, a number of clients. Um, the FCA have also been asking us lots of questions as part of various studies they've been doing for us to sort of do some work into it. And I suppose the other things are um, the press have been very sort of questioning about some of these lists. The FCA have been a bit questioning about some of these lists as well. So for us, it was a good opportunity to um, actually sort of go out there and say it how we sort of see it. I think the other, the reticence probably um, internally is that we've never viewed the Wealth 150 as a fund. And it was always very easy to sort of present the Wealth 150 as one thing. And it never, it's never been that way. It's always been a list of our favourite funds, never a sort of a, a portfolio in, in and of itself. So we've always been very cautious of sort of just stating the performance of the Wealth 150. And the FCA, in fairness, have been cautious about us doing that as well. So lots of sort of pull and push factors. I suppose the last one to put into the mix is the rise of passives in that yeah. historically our business was pretty much all um, active management. And over the last few years, passive has got a greater and greater sort of say both in terms of what our clients do and what's going on there, going on out there in the wider world and and I think we wanted to probably put a positive message out there as yeah, as to our belief which is yes it's great having good passes but equally we think there are some fantastic active fund managers out there as well um, so please don't ignore these and this was our way of sort of showing that, that we think it is possible to pick good funds. We know that the FCA, the regulator, uh, has announced it's going to do its review of the way the platforms operate and it's just completed a review of the asset management industry in which it seeks to, um, it raises the question of whether you know active funds as recommended by a number of advisory firms as well as um, platforms like yourself, whether they are effective or not. So could one say that in a sense you're also as it were, putting in a, a kind of preemptive strike against against what they're going to come up with? I don't think so. Actually, we've been, we've been talking to the FCA about this for quite a long time. And actually, yeah, part of the work that we've done here is work that we've um, done in conjunction with having kind of conversations with the FCA about how they're conducting their work and our sort of questioning as, as to what they were doing. I think, again, some of that was quite good at bringing it to a head. But um, this is a, a, a point that is going to be brought up as part of the asset management, uh, sorry, of the, um, the platform study. Um, I think we actually were doing this work before the platform study had even been announced that it was going to be coming out. But um, yeah, a kind of a combination of all those factors is, I guess, why it's come out today. My initial take on what the FCA has said is is not um, they haven't been condemning of recommended lists in any way at all. In fact, my initial reading of the short piece that they put out the other day was actually that they were being reasonably positive about them. Yes, to so be fair, it wasn't it wasn't very detailed. But what they said, uh, I think it's fair to say, is that 
their analysis of, of these various Best Buy lists from various sources, not just yourself, showed that uh, those funds did perform better than the ones who weren't on those lists uh, over time. But they also said that they didn't necessarily outperform um, you know, the benchmark categories that were set by the research firm Morningstar. How would you sort of interpret that particular finding? Um, I would say, um, with all due respect to the FCA, I, I, and, and to, indeed to Morningstar, actually, I don't think the Morningstar categories are very good at all. We've had this conversation with them about, yeah, we think if you really want to compare a fund against a proper benchmark, you need to decide what you think the ben- right, right benchmark is for that particular fund. Um, that's what we've done, how we've analysed our list here. Um, we don't think it's really fair to, to stick funds doing different things against one benchmark in the hope that it might outperform that benchmark. Well, that's a very interesting question because, of course, the problem with all these uh, studies into fund performance is if you're going to measure it against the benchmark, what benchmark do you choose? To take one obvious example, do you take the one that the fund itself has chosen or should you choose one which actually reflects what they're more likely to be actually doing in practice? Which of those two routes do you take? I guess we try to take the approach of, do we think this is the right benchmark? Do we think if this was put in front of the client, um, they would think it was a fair um, a fair benchmark to use as well? So um, if we felt that a fund is using a benchmark that is completely inappropriate, say, for instance, um, some funds have a benchmark which is a capital return index. So let's say the FTSE All Share Capital Return Index, we think that's entirely inappropriate. Um, so whether the fund manager likes it or not, we would compare that fund against an all share total return index as opposed to um, a capital return index. So again, um, I know it's difficult. There's no kind of one right answer for these things. But I think whether you're a client looking at a fund performance, whether you're a regulator or whether you're someone like us that selects funds, um, you have to do um, what you think is, is the most appropriate, um, appropriate analysis. And so, for instance, take our UK um, all company funds. Um, I'm pretty sure in every single circumstance we've used the FTSE All Share Total Return Index for that. We think that is an appropriate index for a homogenous group of funds doing a similar thing, which is competing against each other and competing against the benchmark for performance. Once you go into things like the flexible sector, comparing that against some sort of Morningstar benchmark, when you've got funds that are very defensive versus funds that might be fully exposed overseas, you've got such a wide mix um, you do have to be more specific in those, um, when you start looking at a, a group like that. Yes, and that's, of course, another problem. The categorization of funds that is done by the uh, IMA, the industry uh, trade body, is not always particularly helpful um, for yeah. the kind of purpose that uh, people will be buying yeah. funds for. Well, let's take a quick look at just some of the um, some of the things you did find when you did analyze, or when you have been analyzing your Wealth 150 um, fund performance. I mean, what was striking, obviously, is that you know, in some sectors, you mentioned the UK, uh, and, and in some of the bond sectors, uh, your funds did particularly well. In other cases, they didn't do so well. So perhaps we could just take one or two examples. Um, well, let's start with the UK, because that's really your, I suppose, the biggest sector in which your clients invest, almost certainly, I'm sure. And I think you found that in, in the oil company sector, your funds, are in, on average, outperformed by about 13 14%. Uh, over a period of, is it 13 years or 14 years? It's a total differential. It's not a compound one, um, as you probably guessed from the size of the number. Um, on average, um, I don't, I haven't actually broken it out into each area, but on average, funds, when they've been on the Wealth and 50, have been on for around about five years. Um, so if you take that average, you'd say outperforming by about 13% over a five-year period. So in that particular case, the UK has been one of our um, strongest areas. Yeah, the, the funds that we've selected um, have gone on 
perform very well. Obviously, some of those funds actually in the UK we have had for quite some considerable period of time. I mean, we've spoken many times in the past about the quality of UK equity managers out there, active equity managers out there. Um, and it's certainly the case that, that we have historically found some of the absolute best stock pickers in the market within the UK. And anyone who's talked to me about funds before would say that we found many of those within the smaller mid-cap area. So their ability to pick stocks in smaller mid-cap area. And that comes through on this work as well, but um, particularly in the small cap area, the funds that we've selected have massively outperformed benchmark and peer groups. So um, the UK has been probably our, um, our best hunting ground for talent. Yeah, there's a lot of good funds out there as well. But um, equally, there are some areas um, where times have been a lot tougher. North America, we've talked about for many years of having problems trying to find decent managers in America. And we've um, succumbed to an S&P 500 tracker as our core. In fact, it's not S&P 500, it's a broader index, but uh, an American tracker is our way of getting exposure to core America. So, yeah, so on average, we've done better in sectors, in more sectors than we have in bad, than underperform. Um, but equally, there's been plenty of sectors where actually, um, yeah, we would have been better to, to have a tracker. I think the, the thing that I found most fascinating about this work is um, how badly behind the benchmark a lot of trackers were. Um, so I think there's a perception that trackers do as well as an index, but the reality is when you see this work, the average tracker doesn't do anywhere near as well as the index. Yes, I mean, that's undoubtedly true. And that's partly, I guess, because they have become a lot cheaper in more recent years, but over time, originally, they were, a lot of them are very expensive and you were paying just as high a fee for a, mm -hmm. a tracker fund then as you were for an actively managed yeah. fund today, post-RDR. I suppose I have to ask you whether you think that comparing... The funds that you've chosen, which are the ones by definition, which are the, the best ones you can find uh, with the average of the tracker community is, is necessarily the best way to do it. I mean, should you not be comparing it to the best tracker fund rather than to the average tracker fund? Uh, I would definitely disagree with that. Um, comparing an average of either the peer group um, or of the funds that we've chosen against the very best of, of something in another area seems a completely crazy thing to do. Um, if you knew which was going to be the, the, the best tracker fund you know, without hindsight, then no other tracker fund would need to exist in the first place. So um, you know, the reality is clients can either buy an active fund um, or they can go and buy a tracker and they have to choose between those trackers just in the same way as they have to choose between the active. You know, inevitably, some tracker funds don't do, don't do so well or um, are a bit too sort of specialist. So I think it probably underlines the, the need to be cautious when you're selecting your tracker funds just as you as you should be when you're you're selecting your active funds. But yeah, do I think it's fair? I, I, I think that's the fairest way to do it. I think it would be entirely unfair to compare against just the best tracker that happens to have been in existence. But it does underline a fundamental point, which is that you know passive funds and tracker funds have been coming more popular in recent years. Uh, partly because of their low charges, and some of them can do very well. So it'd be misleading to give the impression that investing in passive funds is uh, is always a bad thing to do, even though the average one may actually underperform in many cases. Yeah, I, I believe in active as well as passive. Yeah, personally, I spend my time trying to find active funds, but equally, I understand that the active fund market is complicated. There's lots of moving parts. Fund managers leave and go to other fund management groups. Um, you have to sell funds and buy new funds, it can be a bit of a pain to sort of deal with all of that. Um, and whilst there's a lot of hobbyist investors that get yeah, get excited about making those sorts of changes, passive is a fantastic solution for lots and lots of people. It's low cost. It gets you exposure to the market. 
Um, so in no way um, would I want to sort of talk down um, the passive world. I think our point here is just that, that ultimately you have a choice between the two. Don't start from the point of believing that you can just get the, the index type return um, by buying a passive because it won't always be the case. Um, there are some fantastic trackers out there that do a really, really good job of very closely tracking sensible indices and those are the ones that we very much point people in the right direction of and we've made room for those on our Wealth on 50 um, list. I can't remember what proportion of our Wealth on 50 plus is passive now but it's quite a big proportion. Yes, one other point about the the methodology of your of your research into how the wealth one fifty funds have performed. You obviously make the point when you uh, when you're describing it that uh, one of the things you're you're looking for you're interested in is how funds perform in different market conditions. So how they perform in bull markets and how they perform in bear markets. As a subset of the research you've done, what would you expect to find about how the Wealth 150 funds have done during periods of sharp corrections in markets? Well, I don't know the answer to that. Um, Inevitably, it would be different for different markets. Um, I would say, for instance, in our Asia emerging markets, I would have expected those to hold up, not least because we tend to have, we've had a, a very large exposure to people like First State who tend to have quite sort of low beta, so they tend to do well in tough markets and then sort of just about keep up during the good times. Because of our general small cap tilt within the UK, which obviously, as you said, makes up a, a large proportion of our clients' assets, um, when small companies do badly, which can sometimes come at the same time as as markets fall, that can be quite painful. So we um, experienced a pretty painful period um, in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote. Um, in that a lot of our small cap funds did badly. Um, a lot of our equity income funds that had a bias to small caps did badly. A lot of our UK or company funds with a, with a big bias towards small caps did badly as well. So, so yeah, stylistically, I, I wouldn't say we would do better or worse in a rising or falling market. I think probably against trackers, you'd expect them to do a bit better because fund managers have a bad habit of holding a little bit of cash. So they tend to just be a little bit out of the market. So I wouldn't imagine there's a sort of a consistent bias. Um, what we did see, if you did package the Wealth 150 up as sort of one overall portfolio, which obviously I cautioned on earlier, we had a tough time versus other kind of more balanced type funds when um, 2008-2009 came along. Um, because we tend to select managers that are in the market um, as much as possible. So um, when 2008-2009 came along, that bias to the UK, but also being generally fully invested, um, was a bit more painful. So yeah, I think that's, that's some of that would have sort of gone on within within the choices over time. But we don't sort of select managers based on whether they, we, th- we think they're going to be high or low beta. We generally select them um, because we're trying to find people that can pick good stocks, basically, or, big, or good bonds within the bond world. Yes, and as I know, uh, your research process uh, is designed specifically to um, to try and distinguish between those who are uh, just got the right style at one particular point and those who actually do have, well, as far as one could tell, uh, genuine and enduring stock picking skill, which is really... I think the, uh, the holy grail of what one's looking for if you actually believe that active management can can pay off. The Wealth 150 has been going since uh, 2003, is that right? Or at least the period That's when you've been yeah. analysing this. Yeah. It doesn't always have 150 funds in it, though, does it? I mean, that varies quite a lot over time. I think, yeah, we, I think we launched it with around about 120, if I remember rightly, and then it slowly but surely crept up to about 160. Yeah, as time, time went on, I think as, as a group of fund selectors, we've become more and more critical uh, about what we buy. We tend to look for longer track records um, and we tend to be more difficult to um, convince, I guess. Um, so we then went through or have been through a very long period of sort of thinning the list out. Not to try and get to a number, but just trying to increase our confidence and 
belief in the managers that we have and just taking out anything where we didn't feel that we would be willing to stick with that manager through a tougher period of performance. Um, so I don't know what the number is now, but I think we're maybe down to 70 or so, possibly 70 to 80 within the Wealth 150. Um, and obviously we've got, uh, I think, about 40, 45 within the Wealth 150 plus. So actually, from my perspective, I'm happier with a shorter list. I don't think there's a need to have 150 for the sake of it. Um, and also um, anyone that sort of followed follow the list over time would see that we've taken out a lot of the specialist funds where I personally have come to the conclusion that they um, can be kind of bad for investors' wealth over the longer term because they have a temptation to try and sort of draw people in during the good times and spit them back out the other side when the, the sort of the sector isn't doing quite so well. And even more important than that, what we found through the sector um, specialist type funds is that very few of them added any value through stock picking. So they did well if the sector did well badly if the sector did badly and never really added much value above and beyond it. So given our focus on stock picking, um, and that is our sort of critical um, factor that we're looking for, um, many of those funds just got kicked out on the, on the fact that they just didn't add enough value. So you're thinking, give us an example, you're thinking, I mean, specialist covers such a wide range. Does that include country-specific funds like uh, Russia or somewhere, or, or does it uh, include gold or technology, those yeah, kind of things? So I would say it's more about sort of thematics than it is about country-specific. I mean, some countries are very big. Yeah, UK funds are country-specific, but we wouldn't consider taking UK funds out. But take technology where with, you know, we're um, you know, putting our hands up. I think that's the worst sector that we had in terms of um, picking managers that, that went on to outperform. So um, within, within the technology sector, are there a group of excellent managers that consistently beat a, a sensible technology benchmark? Um, not that we've identified so far. Um, so tech would be a good example. Um, but yeah, the mining sector was a very good example. Yeah. Again, hands up. I just think we, we had too many. Lots of people were interested in mining. We put out there what we thought were that if you wanted to buy mining funds, these are the ones to go for, or commodity funds. Um, and yeah, the reality was the, the managers that we chose didn't do a particularly great job against, um, against those sort of commodity-type indices. I mean, it doesn't mean that people couldn't have made some money along the way, but they had to get out as well at the right time, and uh, that's often... Yeah, really... part of doing this Wealth 150 project was airing our dirty washing. Um, you know, it's warts and all, and obviously the, the, the focus will be on the warts and um, the good stuff will probably get ignored. But, you know, we actually think we did a pretty poor job when it comes to timing of some of these sectors as well. So even, you know, we ourselves even got into the point where with some of the mining funds, you know, we, we concluded that we didn't really want to be in these things. Um, at the time, they were actually falling on a relative basis. And we were thinking, well, should we wait before we take them off the list until it's a kind of a better time and commodities are sort of moved back up? Actually, we should have just got on with it and taken them off on our first con um, conclusion. So um, we think it's difficult for you know, retail investors and institutional investors to make those sorts of timing calls. So we've sort of taken you know, a step back from doing that ourselves. Let's also talk a little bit about the issue of portfolio management, because in addition to uh, your research obligations and duties as CIO of Argus Asdam, you also run the uh, responsible running the your stable of multi manager funds. Yep. Now, uh, obviously, putting a portfolio together, as you made the point already, is rather different from analysing particular funds because it's the combination of the funds that you pick that is important. Um, so, as you say, you wouldn't necessarily create a portfolio just of funds that were on the the one fifty and see what happened. The best way to uh, put this question maybe is how many of the funds that you have in your multi manager funds are on the wealth one fifty list? Well, let's start with that one. Let's just start with that one. Yeah, so um, we actually have a list that we comment on to our uh, 
um, investment committee who include non-exec um, people and we detail any fund where we hold it in the multi-manager funds but it's not on the wealth and 50 because in effect because the multi-manager funds less, hold less funds than on the wealth and 50 you'd expect the ones that are on the multi-manager to be in the wealth and 50. There are a number of reasons where they're not in there. So, for instance, um, some, fund, some fund groups don't want us to promote their funds. So, for instance, Finley Park is a very good example. You know, they're close to new investment. Um, they don't want to bring in um, new investors. We think it's a very good U.S. fund. Um, we've held it within our fund of funds for um, a number of years, decades. But they don't want to be on the wealth of 50, so it's not there. Sometimes funds get close to new money. So Old Mutual, um, for instance, have closed some of their small cap funds to new money. So we have to take them off the wealth 150 if that's happening. Um, but yet we would keep them within our own fund of funds. So in the majority, um, I, I thought you might find maybe five funds that are in the fund of funds, but um, aren't on the wealth 150. But, but all things being equal, if the pricing is sensible, if the fund is open um, and that they are willing to, um, to have that fund sold into the retail marketplace, then you'd expect them to be on both. You have expanded your range of multi-manager funds a lot in the last few years, and uh, you've gone into a number of different sectors where you weren't before. What's been the driving motivation behind that, and uh, how much further have you got to go in that? Driving motivation was um, that where we had funds, so take our equity income fund, clients could select to choose those own fund, choose the funds off the wealth and fifty, of which I think there's about six or seven at the moment. Um, or if they didn't really want the, the hassle of building the portfolio themselves, then they could pay um, Hogwarts Zanzan to do that on their behalf. And we've pretty successfully um, both managed the funds, but also um, from a kind of a client service perspective, we think we've offered a service that the clients are interested in. If they weren't, they wouldn't have um, directed quite a lot of their money into those funds. So we went through a process of saying, are there any areas where large amounts of our clients' money goes um, that we also feel that we could bring a product to the market that, that we could you know, hand on heart sort of sit behind in terms of expectations for good long-term performance? Um, so, for instance, um, the UK, we think we could find a number of exceptionally good managers in, in the UK. Um, as we talked about earlier, that's been a kind of a highlight for us. So we launched our UK fund. Um, that's already top quartile you know, as it sort of heads into its third year this year. Um, so we're very comfortable with that. We looked, for instance, though, at UK small caps where we think we can find lots of great managers. But unfortunately, there's only so much liquidity we could have in that area. So we um, discounted the idea of bringing a, a UK small cap fund of funds to the market. We didn't find enough good Japanese managers or enough demand for us to do a Japanese fund. We quite obviously haven't been um, capable of picking good enough American funds and therefore we didn't bring an American fund of funds to the market, even though that could potentially have been um, an area that we could have pulled a lot of money into. So it was a combination of did we see a demand there and did we see um, that we could launch something um, that we felt would be able to perform well. And where's that got us to? So we have 10 fund of funds. I don't see um, any reason to launch any other funds. There's, no, there's nothing that we're looking at as an area that, uh, that we think is both high in demand um, and also where we could launch a product that we believe would perform well. One of the things that everybody, I think, a lot of people seem to look for, though I'm always quite puzzled myself why, is people interested in, in global equity funds. I guess there have been one or two notable successes in recent years, um, you know, Fundsmith and Linsell Train being good examples. But do you actually think there is a good rationale for 
uh, a global equity fund, first of all, and secondly, a global equity fund of funds. Given that the difficulty of actually finding good stock pickers who can actually pick stocks across the globe compounds as the further away you go from your core market. So we have, as um, you may know, our, our own global fund of funds, which is our HR Special Situations Fund. Um, and yeah, I think it's got a fantastic track record. It's outperformed the peer group. More importantly, it's also outperformed the World Index and the UK Index. So, um, so is it possible to do it? Yes. Um, that fund was launched in 2001, so we think it is possible to do it. It's certainly not easy, though. And as you pointed out, the average fund in the global growth peer group is pretty poor, to say the very least. So we've, we've approached that problem from where do you find great stock pickers anywhere in the world and built a portfolio from that perspective. I think if you start from the perspective of... Um, you've got to have 60% in America. Can you find good stock pickers in America? Then you're going to find yourself in a pretty tricky situation very, um, very, very quickly. Um, that sector has also got quite a few really sort of specialist type funds in there as well, which I think I think um, you should, should show a certain amount of caution on. But why do global funds not perform as well as perhaps they could do? I really don't know the answer to that. Perhaps people underestimate the task. Analyzing companies globally is, is never going to be easy. But then we can see... In the emerging market world, people like Stuart uh, managing their Asian funds out of Edinburgh, out of an Edinburgh office. It is possible to, you know, you know GLG with Japan, where their Japanese fund is probably one of the best Japanese funds in the world, and it's um, managed out of the north of England. So it's a funny business investment. There's no kind of right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. But um, on average, when people try to tackle that global question of picking good companies globally, they do seem to fail at it. So we back very few global managers. We tend to invest with specialist managers that are focusing on one particular area, whether that be small caps or equity income as a style in the UK market, um, because maybe the the challenge is too big or maybe people overthink the problem. I don't, I don't really know quite where it goes wrong, but I suppose Lindsay Train um, and Fundsmith are showing that it is possible to actually do very, very well with a relatively small team. So it's not just about big numbers either. No, it's about the simplicity of the philosophy and the approach, I guess. And the, yeah. there is an element of concentration risk in there, of course, which could come back to, um, to bite them at another time in terms of the style and stuff they do. My final question, Lee, what does it take to get a fund off the Wealth 150. You've mentioned some of the problems you've had with specialist funds and the timing of all that. I guess a lot of people will be thinking this week, well, there's been so much you know, publicity about Neil Woodford and his funds, which has been, I think, a, a staple of yours for many, many, many years. What would actually would it take for, for you ever to change your mind about uh, someone like Neil Woodford? Let's not get too specific about that, but let's, you know, he's so well known that it's perhaps a, a fair way to put the question to you. I think it takes quite a lot for us to give up on a manager. Um, and it, it probably takes equally a large amount to convince us that a manager is good in the first place. So um, <clears throat> the, the kind of the love affair uh, for getting into uh, or backing a manager um, can sometimes take several years. Uh, we tend to look for 10-year track records before we start adding funds onto the Wealth and 50. And I'm talking about 10-year track records of the manager doing the thing that they do or something very similar. Um, so, um, And we also believe that if you find a good fund manager, you need to grab hold of them with both hands and hold on to them for dear life for as long as possible. And it's easy to sort of get shaken off um, as well. So you know, every manager goes through a tough patch of performance. Um, Neil Woodford, for instance, has been through a few times where he's been absolutely bottom decile within, um, within the peer group. Each of those times, you would have been wrong to 
given up on, on him as a manager. Um, and we've seen that as well across lots of other managers that we've got. They go through a tough period of performance. It could be tempting to, to sell and move on. Uh, we've stuck with it, and actually they've just sort of come back come back again, you know, been through a tough patch of performance, as anyone can do. But our job is to sort of weigh up um, where our conviction is um, and make sure that we, when it comes to building our portfolios, weight the position accordingly. Um, and when it comes to the Wealth 150, it's kind of an absolute, you know, if we lose conviction um, that that this manager, we believe this manager can outperform on kind of a three to five year view. Once that conviction has gone, really, it's, it's right for us to um, to remove the funds from the Wealth on 50. In the case of Neil Woodford, I am nowhere near that point. Yeah, Neil has a very, very long track record, and we know that he's been through some tough patches before and come out the other side. So at the moment, I'm assuming that this is one of those, you know, just one of those periods. Now, the world might change. You know, good businesses turn into bad businesses. Good fund managers can turn into bad fund managers over time. We could all point to some examples where an excellent fund manager just sort of lost it in the latter part of their career and, and it never came back again. Um, so um, I would that for one um, very much would like to see Mr Woodford um, deliver some excellent performance. I know that he's absolutely committed to doing that. Um, but if our confidence wavered to a point where we actually felt this is no longer the right thing to do, then, then that's what kicks funds off. Mostly, if you look through the changes that we've made, um, it will be either a fund manager's left or performances deteriorated over a prolonged period of time, um, which was unusual versus what we'd seen in the past. Or in the case of some of those stylistic type funds where we just sort of eventually realised that we were just, you know, felt well, we were doing the wrong thing on having these on the Wealth on 50 and therefore we made a much wider cull um, of, part of, the, part of the Wealth on 50. So there's no easy answer to it, um, but fundamentally it just comes down to conviction, I'd say. And how much in the end do you think that having a fund on the Wealth 150, how influential is it with your clients? I mean, have you been able to, you must be able to track that. Um, uh, does it so actually help? To- I would say um, I've been in a few um, sort of relatively small sessions with groups of clients that have come in and it underlines how important it is um, for those particular clients. So many of them said, unless it's on the Wealth 150, they wouldn't consider it to buy at all so it's in effect it's there they need that seal of approval for them to have the confidence to go on and make the investment um, decision so um, that in itself was quite humbling to realize that that people were just not willing to make a decision unless we'd sort of given it the thumbs up so um, it's obviously it's different for different types of clients some clients won't have anything from the wealth on 50 um, but it is pretty influential both in terms of the decisions they made but also obviously importantly from the amount of money that goes into those funds so what we find is that a very high proportion of the money that's going into funds will go into the funds that um, are on the wealth on 50 or wealth on 50 plus which i guess in a way just underlines the fact that finding good fund managers and, and analyzing funds is not an easy business however um, much it may be presented as such i mean there are over three thousand funds or whatever it is to to choose from I guess the rationale for, for your lists and for other, other advisors' lists and other platforms' lists is that you are providing an initial screening service that actually helps people to narrow it down to a smaller universe, uh, which is probably a positive, and, and that's why it's so important to keep monitoring how well those uh, those funds are performing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, our business in some ways depends on it. I mean, yeah, we could have a Hargreaves Zanzan without the Wealth 150, but we... Yeah, we hold out our job as being to help people invest. And so to leave people completely to the whim of those 3,000 funds to choose from is is an incredibly difficult task to take on. Um, my colleague Mark Dampier wrote a book on investing and selecting funds. And actually, the one conclusion we both came from from reading that book is how blooming difficult it is. All the things that you need to know about a fund in order to, to make an investment decision on it most of that is actually hidden to the retail investor. It's personalities, it's investment process, 
It's what the investment style is, whether that's changing over time. It's understanding the passion for the job. Lots and lots of things that some of it quantitative, some of it qualitative, but very little of that is given to the client when they're making an investment decision. So in effect, how we communicate through the Wealth 150 is trying to sort of pass on some of those pearls of wisdom as well. Well, we'll all be anticipating what the FCA is going to come up with in their platform review. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank you, Lee, very much for uh, taking the time to discuss this tricky business of fund selection uh, with us today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Moneymakers podcast. Our podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on a variety of podcast channels including SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and also Share Radio's platform. The podcasts are free. If you want to find out more or listen to some of the earlier interviews in the series, please go to our website, www.money-makers.co, or follow us in future on any of the channels just mentioned. Thank you for listening.